Um, you know, last week we talked about Stephen's life. We talked about death and how death makes us think about things in a very different light if death, if death is imminent. Not just, we all know we're going to die, but when you know that, that that moment of your passing from this life to the next is really short in front of you, it crystallizes your thinking and your relationship to God. It brings it really quickly to your forefront of your priorities. And I had you guys write out a statement last week that said, I am fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am His for anything, anytime, any place. And I've had at least eight guys come up to me between last week and even this week and say, I just can't sign that statement. Because I, I want to be honest and I just can't say that I'm really there. Stephen was a guy who had walked with the Lord for three weeks. You see, and I want to explain it a little bit because I felt like last week when I left, people might have a misunderstanding of what I meant in that statement. Because the statement's not saying what you're going to do. The statement is saying who you're going to trust. And I want, I want you to understand that. There's a big difference between those two things. Our thinking, because we're so geared to this in the West, is to think when we sign up for something like that, or we, we were to sign a statement like that, we're thinking about I and what I can do. In fact, it's reflected in what the people said. I don't know that I can do that. What does God's Word say? Does it say in uh, uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy, that when we are faithless, He is faithful? That's what it says. If God chose you before the beginning of time, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He chose you. You know you're chosen. You know you're called. Do you think God can equip you and strengthen you to do anything, anywhere, anytime? Do you believe that? You see, that's what faith really is. It's in Him. When, when we start making the statement about us, then we become the object of our faith, not God. And that's the whole point. Stephen's faith was in Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so when we look at the text and we look at Stephen's life, here's a guy who had been a believer for a few weeks. Of course he knew the, Testament, the Old Testament. He knew that that was his Scriptures. He knew it. But he was not inborn with the Holy Spirit until he trusted Christ. That's when it became... Uh, a, he was adopted into the family of God at that moment. And you go, yeah, but he knew about the Old Testament. Yeah, but he had not been inborn with the Holy Spirit yet. That didn't happen until Jesus of Nazareth came. And remember Jesus said, go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you? Prior to that, no Old Testament saint, no matter how great they were, Moses, Abraham, uh, David, it doesn't matter. You pick any of them. They were not permanently indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Even though they, they, they loved God, they were not permanently indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That was new. It was a mystery. Paul talks about that. And so when we look at Stephen and we look at his example, that should encourage you and me. I don't care how long you've walked outside of God. 
It doesn't take a long time to walk with God to do anything, anytime, anyplace. It's just a matter of submission. That's why I said it's not about your commitment, it's about your surrender. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's all, that's what's required. When you surrender your heart, and you cannot surrender 90% of your heart knowing, knowingly withholding 10% of your heart. When Jesus makes a statement, he says, Listen, um, anyone who wants to be my disciple, he says, What? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, daily and follow me. When they heard, Take up your cross, do you think there was any question in their mind of what that meant? They saw crosses every day in their daily life. When they walked down the road, they saw people crucified. They knew what that meant. You see, we grow up in a culture where Jesus is optional. Jesus is conditional. But for the people in the Middle East, for the people in China, the people in North Korea, the people over in northern India, for those people, when they trust Christ, they know immediately when they say yes to Him, they're giving up everything. And so, there's no question about their authenticity or their surrender. Nobody superficially commits to Jesus over there or surrenders to Him. It is a full end. So what in our culture evokes that? If we can't write down a statement like that, because literally I've got, I, I've got a lot more blowback than I thought I would get over that. I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, should I question my salvation? I don't know. Should you? Should, yeah, Gil. You talk about our law enforcement connection. You and I both stood in front of somebody <clears throat> and we raised our right hand. Mm -hmm. And you and I both swore that we will protect the lives and property of the citizens of this community. We both did that. And we've seen, like in the shooting situation, if it's bad, you call a squad. But if it's a school situation, squad's not there, no matter what, you go in. If it's a school, go in, do what you can. You may get killed, do something. And we've seen where people who raise their right hand to do that don't go in. They can't do. Now, I signed that thing also. And then I questioned myself later. Yeah. Like, man, I don't know. Do, you know, it sounds good. And you start thinking back, wait a minute, go anywhere and do anything? In my mind, yeah, but what if I'm called? Will I really go anywhere and do anything that God asks me, tells me to do? I can't say that I can't say 100% that I would. So that, I mean, I don't think there's any confusion. That's what people are saying. You have them write out a statement, then sign it. So can they really, can we really keep that commitment 100%? Do we do, know that we can? But, but let me ask you this statement. Let's just reword it a little bit. Do I trust God to do anything, anytime, anyplace? Yes. Am I His? Yes. If He asked me to do anything, anytime, anyplace, and He can do anything, anytime, anyplace, then why wouldn't I feel free to sign that saying I'm surrendered to him? Okay, I, I, yeah, I trust God. We said that, I think the guys, I'm only speak for the other people. Yeah, of course, I fully trust God, but do I fully trust myself? No, no, no. No, no. Okay. See, when, when you go from God to yourself, you said, I fully trust God, but do I trust myself? Mm -hmm. Whose are you? His. Well, if you're His, who owns you? He does. Yes. This is not saying you're going to be perfect. What this is saying is, I know I'm His. There's something valuable for us in knowing we are His. 
Stephen knew he was his. That's how he could go in the middle of the Sanhedrin after they crucified Christ, they beat the apostles, and he could go boldly in there and proclaim the truth. Because God says, this is what I want you to do. Paul could go in boldly to somebody and say the truth and and trust that if God wanted him out of that, he'd get him out of that. He said, listen, don't weep for me. You've got to remember, there's one moment where Paul's being let down in a basket to escape, and there's another moment where he's willingly laying his life down. I don't think God's going to give you the grace or the strength to do anything that He's not called you to do at that moment. Because He's He's God. But the matter of trust is, I know I'm His. If He wants me to do something, I'm going to do it. Because I trust Him. It's like a teenager, and I've used this example in here before. When your teenager says, uh, I love you, and you tell them, well, you don't need to do this because this is going to happen, and then they go do it, and they don't trust you, but they then come back and say, well, I really love you, but do they? What does Jesus say measures our love for Him? If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. Abide in me. Abide in me. Walk with me. See, in the West, we've made the whole thing about God and Jesus up here. And it does go through the head, but it has to impact the heart. And not only half heart. You look at Saul. Saul had no heart for God, did he? King Saul, the Old Testament king. David had a whole heart. Solomon had a half heart. And if you look at those three examples, I think most of the people in this country that I meet, a lot of them, I wouldn't say most, I'll say a lot of them, fall into the Solomon category. God's not looking for Solomon's. He's looking for David's. Was David perfect? No. He committed murder. He committed adultery. And yet, he had a whole heart for God. The issue is not what we do, it's what's here. We cannot hold back and say, I'm giving you this much of my heart, God. That's the point. You lay it down. Remember what Jesus said? Are you going to leave me too, Peter? And Peter says, no, where are we going to go? You alone have the words for life. We are connected to you. You are, you are our everything. Now, after saying that, you know what Peter did? He denied him three times. That was after Peter said that. So Peter had this loyalty ultimately to Jesus, but he denied Him at different times. And that's why I'm saying it's not about your performance. It's about giving Him your heart and saying, I'm surrendered to you with whatever you want to do with me. We say that. And even Peter said that. Yeah. But when the rubber met the road, it was time to do it. He fell. (laughs) But why did he fall? But why did he fall? Who was he depending on? Yeah. He he wasn't placing trust in him at that moment, but at some point he did, and he was ultimately was he ultimately loyal to Jesus? Why? Because he was chosen. He was God's called vessel. And and God did a work in him. And what Jesus tried to show him over and over and over, hey, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you. When you come back. When you come back, strengthen your brothers. 
Man, that, that to me would be one of the most comforting things when he says, when you come back. The problem is not falling. The problem is not coming back. And so, he's calling us to follow him. Stephen is a picture of a guy who's fully surrendered to God. At, you know, and he, he gives him his life even though it's short. It's a few weeks. And what God did with it in the midst of it. And he's an example, I think, that we ought to hold up, that we ought to aspire to. It's not that, that we're going to be just like him, but what does Paul say? Emulate me as I emulate, emulate who? Imitate Christ. And it's the same with Stephen. We hold up Daniel a lot of times as a bold guy. But you know what Daniel didn't do? Daniel didn't proclaim the Gospel to the people. He lived out a bold life. But Stephen is a guy who boldly proclaimed the Gospel to people that had already heard it four times and crucified the one it was about and then the people that followed him. They, they, they beat and imprisoned. And here he is going up. He is a great picture for us to go... Man, that's the kind of guy I want to be like. And so when I say fully surrendered, the reason I had people write that out is because that's who Stephen was. That's who we should aspire to be. When I was going through the Marine Corps, they used to show us pictures of all these Medal of Honor winners, and then they'd tell their story. Why do you think they did that? Yeah, they're trying to inspire us. This is who you want to be like. And so... Why do we want to be like this guy? Because he was fully surrendered. It wasn't because he had all these mental skills, because he had all these physical talents. It's because he was fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And he was surrendered and God used him. Now, this text today is one of the largest, I think it's the longest in Acts. It may be one of the longest messages in the New Testament. It's Stephen's message before the Sanhedrin. They've already heard the gospel, but he's going to go back and share it again. But what is he doing? He's responded to four specific charges they made against him. They drummed up charges against him just like Jesus. One, you blaspheme God. Two, you blaspheme Moses. Three, you blaspheme the temple. And four, you blaspheme the law. And so Caiaphas starts off chapter 7 by saying, what do you say to all this? What do you plead? Basically. And so in this text today, we see an apologist, really. The, the word apologia, I think is what it is in the Greek. It just means to defend. And he's an apologist. He, he basically defends the faith. I used to not be a big believer in defending the faith, to be honest with you. I thought, you just tell people you don't have to defend it. But no, there is a reason to defend the faith. Because you reason with people. And he is a great example of that right here in chapter 7. And what he does is, is he shows us how God calls you and me to defend the faith. What we really believe by first of all being a bold witness. You can't be a defender of the faith if you're not a bold witness. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we're a biblical witness. A bold witness and a biblical witness. Verses 1-17 through 17 is all we're going to get through today. But 1 Peter 3 says, always be ready, ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. So, Mike, somebody comes up to you and goes, you know, I don't really believe in God. You know, I look around and everything going on in the world, it's awful. How can a good God make this? Are you ready to defend that? 
Are you ready to be able to take Scripture and give it to somebody like that? Jose, somebody comes up and says, you know what, my God's a loving God. He would never send anybody to hell. Do you know where to go in Scripture to defend that? Do you know where it talks about how to reason with somebody? Well, Stephen was charged with these four charges of blaspheming against God. Why? Because what was Stephen proclaiming? What was he he a part of? What What was the object of his faith? Jesus of Nazareth, right? So these leaders were saying, you're blaspheming God to believe in Jesus being the Messiah. So what he does, the first thing he does is he hooks them. If you're a fisherman, you know you got you you gotta you can't let them see the hook, right? If they see the hook, they're not gonna do it. So what he does is he identifies with them and he makes it luring to them by going back to the things they believe and building a point of of uh, relating, a point of identifying with them. And he's good. God is God is the one ultimately doing it through him. But boy, it's good. It's, it's incredible how he kind of lays it out and sets them up for the hook that's gonna. Psh- Get him. And then he indicts him. And that's what you see. And you know, if you go to Titus, Titus 1, 9, 10 talks about um, elders, but I think it's applicable even to us as men. Because we're all leaders. We're, we're called to be leaders. Leaders in our family. Leaders in the community. And let me, let me get this real quick. I want to read this to you. You can turn to Titus 1, 9 and 10. Listen to what God's Word says here. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Wait a minute, we're supposed to rebuke people? Wait, isn't that being divisive to do that? No. The word says you rebuke people who contradict his word. For there are many who are insubordinate Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So, do we have a responsibility to defend the faith and speak the truth? Absolutely. We absolutely do. And that's what Stephen does. And God calls us to defend our faith, what we believe from His Word. And that's what we're going to see. So the way we're going to kind of unpack this today is a little different than we normally do. Normally kind of go through and we, we, we lay out these propositional truths that we can see. But today we're going to go kind of... We're not going to read it and come back. We're going to kind of work through it making comments about different things in the text as we go through it. So just join me. Turn to Acts 7. And we're going to go 1-17. through 17. So it says first, and the high priest said, are these things so? What things? Well, what we just talked about. Blasphemy against God. Blasphemy against Moses. Blasphemy against the temple. And blasphemy against the law. Are these things so? And by the way, high priest was Caiaphas. Okay? The same Caiaphas that was there with Jesus. The same Caiaphas that was there with Peter and John. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The brothers are the Jews that are there. The fathers are the leaders of the Sanhedrin. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. So what does just that reference say to you right there, the way he addresses them? Respect. Yeah. He's respectful. He's respectful in the way he deals with them. He says, hear me, 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, he, he says our father. Notice he identifies with him there, our father. But he uses the term God of glory. Now, what was Stephen's Bible at this point in history? The Old Testament. How many times do you think that phrase, the God of glory, appears in the Old Testament? That name, that title. One time. One time in Psalm 29. Let's turn there real quick. Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Listen to what it says. Every Jew would have known that because it's only one time that title of you. Listen, God had lots of titles. Jehovah Nisi. He's our banner. Jehovah Rapha. He's our healer. Jehovah Sidkenu. He's our righteousness. God had lots of titles. The God of glory, one time in all of Scripture, the Jews would have known exactly where it was. Listen to what it says. David wrote it. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Does this sound like a guy who's blaspheming God who's making a reference to this psalm? He's defending himself by going to their Scripture. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people and may the Lord bless His people with peace because He was also the God of peace. What he's saying here is the new covenant is not against the one true living God. I believe in that God. I'm one of you. I believe in Yahweh. That's what he's saying. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of glory. That's what he's saying. And then he, he mentions Abraham in verse 2. And he says in verse 3, And he said to him, talking about Abraham, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. He was from Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan. Who can claim responsibility for Abraham's righteousness? Only God. Only God. It was God's grace. It was grace that brought him out. He was a pagan and God brought him to Haran. And after his father died in Haran, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Notice it's, it doesn't say God moved him. What does it say? It said God removed him. You find that interesting that, that the, the, the word that Luke used there is not a positive move. It's a negative remove. He removed him from there. 
And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So what's he saying right here? You can look, you can scour the Old Testament and you won't find that phrase foot's length in the Old Testament. You know why? Because that's Stephen exposition of God's Word. He's saying, brothers, when Abraham was given this, he didn't even get a foot in the promised land because it was never about possession. It was about the promise. So God gave graciously Abraham a calling. He called him and then He gave him a promise. And Abraham followed not based on what he got, but what the promise was. You see, we want God to give us something. Think about it. Think about gospel presentations. How many times? It's what God's going to do for you. It's not about who God is. It's about the fact that He's a faithful God who has promised us an eternal relationship with Him. But He promised to give us peace. Well, He does promise that. But what does peace look like? For most people in our culture, you know what they think? They think that means no bills, no pain, no suffering. That's what most people think. That's what people in our culture think. Peace never meant that. Peace meant that God reigns. And we can rest in the fact that He's God. He's Creator. And I'm going to show you in just a second when we look here as we go through this text, Israel always was rejecting God. They always rejected His plan. They didn't really want Him except they wanted Him for what He could do for them. Which is what we see a lot in our culture. And so when it says, go down to verse 6, and God spoke to this effect, that His offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship Me in this place. Guys, do you know, if you go back to Genesis 15-13, God said that His people would be enslaved. So who was responsible for slavery of the Israelites? Okay. God. So do you see the problem with critical theory? Do you see why critical theory says you have oppressors and oppressed? There's no biblical tie-in to that. If you want to get upset with somebody about things going on in our world, we need to get upset with God. Because He's allowing to happen what He's allowing to happen. He's sovereign over it all. The issue is not my skin color or your skin color. The issue is the heart. It is an evil heart that would mistreat anybody because of a skin color or any other reason. For the rich, for the poor, it doesn't matter. It's an evil heart. God allowed His people to go into slavery 430 years, and it was he said it in Genesis 15, and then it happened over in Exodus. You see it happening. And he said he's going to judge them. And what is Stephen doing? He's going back. He is unfolding, starting in Genesis, the history of God's people. 
Why? Because he's saying, listen, the new covenant is not against God. It's part of His plan. It's an unfolding. And he's saying, I'm one of you. I, this is my God too. And what he's unfolding, Stephen saw the glory of God before he died, by the way. It says that at the end. And, and what he says in verse 6 and 7, whatever nation that holds them in bondage, I will judge. Did God judge Egypt? Yep. You betcha. The firstborn of every person died. The plagues that hit Egypt, when they pursued them in the Red Sea, what happened? Yes, he did. He judged them, but he used them too. Why? He's God, he's sovereign. But He calls you and me to defend the faith just like Stephen. It was bold to go in there. He was a bold witness to go in there to the, to the very people that were supposed to be the guardians of God's Word and His truth. And He's schooling them on the history to, to build a connection there. And He lures them in. And they're listening. And I guarantee you, they let Him go on and they're listening to Him. And listen to what He says, verse 7. I will judge the nation that they serve, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. At this point, they're sitting there in the Sanhedrin and they're going, okay, we like what this guy's saying. They love the patriarchs. They loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were all into that, and he has set the hook in them. Because now he's about to flip it and indict them. And it's, it's, it's incredible. It's the spirit in him. But he goes from being a bold witness to being a truly biblical witness because he's not using the Scriptures for his agenda. He's using the Scriptures as God unfolded them in the way God wanted them to be communicated. Verse 8, and I'm sorry, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. You know the story of Joseph. You go back to Genesis, you can read it, Genesis 37 through the end of the uh, uh, book. Joseph had brothers. They were jealous. But what had God revealed to Joseph? He had revealed that one day your brothers are going to bow down to you. Did that come true? Yeah, we know that, right? Joseph didn't handle it the best way when he was telling his family, obviously, because he ticked them off. They got mad. But was it true? It was true. God said, I choose you. His brothers did not like that. His brothers rejected God's choice and God's plan. Why? Because they didn't think it was right. They didn't think it was fair. Do we do that? Yes. We do that all the time. We don't like God's plan. We don't like it. And that's exactly what they did. They, listen, he's masterful. He's bringing out, he brings out Abraham because Abraham, what? It wasn't about a possession, it was about a promise. It wasn't about him being circumcised, it was about what? He was righteous before circumcision. It was about faith. And now he's bringing up Joseph. And I don't know if you've really thought a lot about the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, but they're staggering. Here God makes a choice of Joseph. He reveals it, and what do they do? They reject him. 
Here's His servant Jesus. He reveals it. And what do they do? They reject Him. Notice in verse 10. What what did God do? And God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and he summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at the time, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt. Why? Because they're doing what God said is going to happen. They're going to be taken into slavery. And so what is Stephen doing? He's biblically taking the listeners back. He's not using uh, fancy stories. He's not trying to use mental jujitsu on him. He's taking them back to the Bible. And he's taking them back and he's, he's revealing God's story, His plan, and he's also revealing His promises, which is His sovereignty. Joseph was the chosen one. If you go back, by the way, turn, open to 1 Chronicles 5 too real quick. 1 Chronicles 5. We read over things in the Bible and, and we don't even really take note of what we seek because it's just a statement and it's a passing little comment. But boy, does it have a lot of meat on it. First Chronicles 5, 2. I'm going to start in 1. The sons of Reuben, Reuben was the firstborn of, of uh, Jacob. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Have you ever noticed that? Mm -hmm. The birthright was Joseph's wine. Why was the birthright Joseph's? Well, I mean, Reuben was defiled, but then you go, well, what about Simeon? Well, Simeon and Levi, they cut up the people in Shechem, so that rules them out. But Judah, Judah was next in line. Why wasn't Judah picked? You ever wonder about that? It says the birthright was Joseph. Why? Because God chose Joseph. It says he chose Jacob in the womb over Esau. And people want to debate God's sovereignty in the Scriptures. It's all through Scripture. See, the reason we can sign that sheet of paper that I gave you last week is not about you. It's about Him. I'm chosen. 
I know I'm chosen. There's nothing arrogant about it. I've seen the signs God's displayed. Would you ever go to uh, Daniel or to Stephen or to Paul and, and say, Paul, I don't think you're chosen? After, after you see what Paul has gone through, what, what affirming signs are there in his life? I, I would never do that. I can't say whether you're chosen, but I can say what, whether I'm chosen. I know I'm chosen. That's why when God says, I want you to go do this, I go, okay, you're the king, you're the boss. I serve you. I have no problem signing that sheet of paper and it has nothing to do with my will to do it. It has everything to do with the fact that I know I'm His. And so I rest in the fact that if He wants me to do something, He will give me both the strength, the resources, and the desire at some point to do it. I may not want to do it at first. What did Jesus say in the garden? Man, I don't take this from me. I don't want to do this. Then he says, not thy will, my will, but thy will be done. So being chosen by God and being called by him is something that we are a witness to. Have you ever told anybody that you were chosen by the most high God? I, I love telling people that, man. Their eyes just look at you like, what are you talking about? Like, you know the one God who created the earth? He chose me. That's why I'm blessing you today with this. That's why I want to share with you. Because I've seen Him in my life. I want you to experience what it's like to know the one true living God. Do you know Him? We're called to be bold in sharing that, but we're also called to be biblical in knowing the story. How when 90% of the men in America who go to church read this less than one hour a year, an hour a year, really? How are you going to be biblical when you don't know what the Bible says? You can't know the Bible. It's not just about knowing it generally. you got to be able to know where to go. So, I mean, and tell people, what this is the story. Do you ever hear about this guy named Joseph in the Old Testament? That, that was an old part of the Bible. It was written thousands of years ago. Or you ever hear about a guy named Gehazi? He was a greedy guy. There's all kinds of unfolding parts of God's plan that we get to see and be a witness to. The more you know it, the more energized you are how sovereign He is and to tell people about that, to be bold, to be a witness. And that's what He wants. He wants us to be bold witnesses. Joseph was the chosen one. Jesus was the chosen one. He came. He walked the earth. He was Messiah. And what he did now is he's about, he just indicted them. Why? Because he said the patriarchs rejected Joseph. Israel has rejected God. They rejected God's plan. The patriarchs rejected God's plan. Israel has a history of rejecting God's plan. And he's just unfolding that by being a biblical witness. The question for me and you, which side of that story are we on? Are we like the patriarchs? Are we like the, the Sanhedrin? Are we like Stephen? Are we buying into the fact that Jesus is Messiah and as His chosen call vessels, we are to be bold witnesses and biblical witnesses? If that's true, why is it so hard for me to get up in the morning and read in this book? 
If I know I'm chosen to be His, and I know He wants me to be a witness of His truth and His story, why is it so hard? Because the enemy is alive, the enemy's well, and he does everything he can to dissuade you from doing what God's called you to do. When, when we are going to the Word and we are using the Word to be a witness of Jesus Christ, His people will hear that and they're going to be drawn to it. Now, the, I, I'm going to tell you, I am going to give you a warning. If they're not His people, they're going to hate you for it. You just better be ready. They will absolutely hate you. And we have to rebel against the culture we live in. We cannot let the culture suck us in and think that we can be friends with the culture and doing God's work. You can't. You stand against the culture. They've redefined marriage. They're redefining gender. It is going to cost us in the future to be biblical witnesses for Jesus. When people say things that aren't biblical, we have two choices. We can be quiet and not say anything, which is what we do a lot in the name of unity. Or we can be witnesses to the truth. If somebody's going to put their name out there in a book or in a public airway and put heresy out there, you have every right to say their name and say this is what they're teaching. It's wrong. This is not biblical. There's nothing divisive about that at all. You're holding people to the truth. Now, you can allow your attitude to be hateful. You don't need to do that. But you need to speak the truth to people. And and it doesn't matter whether it's related to, you know... (laughs) them just twisting Scripture for their own benefit to make money, which is some people do. Send your money and I'll send you a handkerchief. It's a nice handkerchief. Well, they are nice handkerchiefs, but it doesn't do anything for you. You blow your nose. There's so many false teachers out there. There's so much bad theology out there. Where are the men of God who are standing up and saying this is wrong? And I, I'm sorry, uh, you, you've, got peach, uh, you've got preachers in major churches. I mean, big conservative churches as far as the Scriptures go. I'm, I mean, conservative as far as the interpretation of Scripture who are now standing up buying into all kind of cultural things and they're getting sidetracked from the truth of Scripture. And, and, and we cannot be... Victim to that. We've got to be men who will stand on God's Word, stand on the truth, bold witnesses for Him and biblical witnesses. Yeah. Well, where's Jeff Suss? I mean, I understand what you're saying. I'm not arguing with all, but all these guys are probably not like me. I go to work every day. I got a family that I'm responsible for. I'm worried about my kids getting off track and all this stuff. I don't, you know, don't have to listen to that guy. But what am I going to do about some guy that's on TV who's giving bad witness other than tell somebody I know, man, I'm going to listen to that guy. He's kooky as a... As a they come. I mean, really, it's, I'm just talking about day-to-day, average guys like us. I agree with you. Huh? But what are we really going to do other than vote for the person that's the most conservative, uh, go to our church, and, and, and try to be a Christian in our day-to-day walk? What, what else are we going to do? We can't. I'm not going to go to Washington and stand up Joe Biden and tell him he's a, you know. You're a witness in your sphere of influence. Okay, that's fine. I understand that. I and your, it goes to kind of the whole discipleship idea. 
If we were to go back 40, 50 years, and we all as men took seriously the role that God has given us to make disciples, do you think we'd live in a different world today? Of course we would. Absolutely. So we can't go back. Let's do it today. Let's start today. As you said, God's given each of us a sphere of people around us. Children, wives, friends, co-workers. Let's be boldly like Stephen, speak the truth. And if we get called up in front of the, the, the city council to talk, speak. But I mean, yeah. we can't go storm the doors. I mean, we could, but I mean, chances no, are we're not going. I, mean, I totally agree. Wherever you are, be a witness. Okay. That's Wherever you are. If somebody asks you about a TV preacher, then talk to them about it. I'm not scouring, you know, uh, TV stations trying to find crazy preachers on there to go uh, do. Yeah, no, I know. But anyway, well, let's pray. Thank you guys for being here. Father, we love you and thank you for who you are. You're a great and loving God. Help us to be bold witnesses for you, Lord. Let us be um, men who are surrendered to the things that you have asked us to do, the thing you've called us to do, and the things, Lord, that you empower us to do. Let us look to you for our strength and any provision we need to do your will. And I pray that, Lord, we would be biblical. Let us, let us spend time reading and studying your word, chewing on it, meditating on it, and be ready to give a defense. Let us know your story. And let us know, Lord, your promises so that we can share those with others. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw people to Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. We love you and we praise you. Amen.